Coffee Break, the advice podcast for teachers, brought to you by UEA. Welcome to Coffee Break, the HE advice podcast from UEA. I'm Miles and with me is Lauren. We're both higher education advisors here at the university. We work with teachers across the UK and advise students on how to progress to university. In this fortnightly podcast, we will be covering everything you need to know to guide students through the UCAS process. Each episode is about 20 minutes, just long enough for a coffee, and we will cover relevant issues, host discussions and debates, and feature an academic talking about their own work. This week, we're going to be discussing open days, why students should do an EPQ, and we'll be joined by a lecturer from our PE department. At the end of the show, we'll also have an opportunity for you to ask your questions. So let's get started this week by welcoming Francesca to the show. Fran runs our open days here at UEA, so let's begin with asking, what happens on an open day? Hi. Um, So, on an open day, you will have the opportunity, uh, or your students will have the opportunity, to attend subject talks, um, to go on accommodation tours, to go on campus tours, um, to go on tours of other areas of campus, for example, the library, or here at UEA we have a sports park. Um, The students will also be encouraged to attend a welcome talk, uh, which will kind of give them a bit of an idea about what it's like to study at that institution. So here at UEA, we have uh, a welcome to UEA talk, which is led by students. So students talking about their experiences of UEA. So why should students come to an open day? An open day is an invaluable opportunity for students to not only find out more about the course that they're interested in studying, but learn more about the institution itself, the feel of the institution. So much of the decision-making process for students is can they, can they imagine themselves living and studying on that campus with that institution? So open days are really, there's, there's nothing else that can give you that kind of insight into an, an institution, what its values are, um, whether you feel you'll be comfortable there, whether you feel you'll fit in there. Um, and as, as well, of course, as finding out about the course itself by talking to academics, you can talk to current students, which through all of our feedback and our experience is nine times out of ten, it's the main kind of factor. It's the main um, important thing that students want when they come is to talk to current students and find out what is it like to be here rather than reading it in a prospectus. Um, And can schools bring groups of students to an open day? Most definitely we encourage that. So if uh, schools are interested in bringing a group of students to an open day all they need to do is email schools at uea.ac.uk Um, And then one of our team will be in touch and we will assist with the arrangement of that visit. Do you know someone who would like this podcast? We'd love it if you shared it with them. Next up, we've got a discussion of a topic that we get asked about a lot at UVA, the EPQ. I'm joined here by Christina Garner, an academic from UEA's law school. And Christina is an expert on the EPQ here at UEA. So my first question is, what is the EPQ and how does it benefit students? Okay, so the EPQ, or Extended Project Qualification, is exactly that. It's an extended project that students take alongside their Level 3 study. Um, It varies between Year 12 and Year 13, and schools set them at different times. But it's this extended piece of work where the student puts a lot of personal research into the project, kind of like a mini-dissertation. They get to pick a topic that's completely free choice. Um, It could be something they really want to pursue. They have support from a member of staff um, at the school, but it should be that independent research that um, the student is completing 
and then reviewing their own skills that they're or using to participate in the EPQ, which makes it a great progression tool for university. Um, sort of not only are they exploring the skills that they need to be able to study independently, but they're then constantly improving and evaluating their own skills in that area. And can you get a scholarship for this too? Yeah, um, so at UEA we absolutely love the EPQ. We think it's a great um, way to set you up ready for university level study and to that end we have our BrightSpark scholarship that recognises individual excellence in the extended project qualification if you are studying a subject or doing your research in a subject area that matches one of our research areas and they are quite broad then um, we'd welcome applications for that scholarship. Oh, okay you mentioned the research areas um, does that have to be what the student is going to study at university? And does it have to be an essay? Okay, so not at all. Um, we really want students to pick something that they're interested in. Another one of the key benefits of the EPQ is that um, students get to somewhat reignite their passion for learning and um, for investigation. So students pick them for different reasons. It might be related to a subject they want to study, which is particularly helpful if that subject isn't something that they can study at level three. So for example, medicine, pharmacy, that kind of thing. It could be related to a job area they want to go into, or it could be on a personal level. We see quite a lot of students that do their EPQs around um, sports or around mental health, around um, different areas. And you also asked if it has to be an extended essay. So there are different options. It depends on the exam board as to how many different options there are. Um, but the key ones are you could either do the extended essay, dissertation style, or you can do a artefact project, which um, lets you create something and then write a narrative alongside about your research and how you've gone into the creative process. So it, sort of, it really fits to individual students' strengths and their interests. And what's your top tip for anyone teaching the EPQ to their students? I would really strongly advise anyone either doing the EPQ or facilitating it to um, really focus on the reflective logs um, or the learning journals. We do see lots of students that admit doing those the night before um, the final portfolio is due in, but they really are there to support the students through the process to get them to evaluate their own skills and how they are developing. And that is the key part that makes the UPQ really valuable to universities um, in the future. So it probably will come up at things like interviews. That was a great overview of the UPQ. It sounds like a qualification students can really make their own. Do you know her colleague who might benefit from hearing this? Why not share it with them? Every episode we get an academic in from one of UEA's schools of study to talk about what they do. This week we are delighted to be joined by Julia from PE. Julia is a lecturer in physical education and sport, specialising in the area of sports development and physical activity. She also has experience within various roles at the Bedfordshire Football Association with responsibility for female football development, youth football lead and female talent pathway manager for the FA Girls Talent Pathway. Julia is here with us. She's going to do a snippet of a taster lecture around elite sport. So, Julia. Thanks very much. So, um, we're going to do a bit of a taster session around elite sports development and think about what are the ingredients to creating medal winning athletes in this country. Um, elite sport development is a small area that we would study within the courses that we have here at UEA. So to start off with, um, 
we would get the the students in the room and I'd encourage you to think about what are the key ingredients to creating medal winning success um, and some of the things that we would then talk about and have discussion about would be the development of facilities in the in the United Kingdom um, funding sport at the elite level government policy and agenda and how we direct the spending of that money really good coaches we need the best coaches to have the best athletes really good talent identification systems and then support in place for athletes once they do reach the elite level such as nutrition psychology and all the things that support them to be the best that they can be so to start off with then just to talk about funding a little bit as it stands uh, the department of digital culture media and sport um, are the government department that um, have written our current sports strategy um, which is dcms 2015 sporting future a new strategy for an active nation um, and at the moment the government are really heavily focused on promoting inactivity and ultimately less inactivity in the community particularly because the ill health of our population is costing the nhs so much money um, so the focus is away from elite sport currently and it will be for the next few years but there's still um, an underlying theme of money that gets given to uk sport so uk sport is our elite uh, talent development governing body in this country and government directive goes through uk sport to then govern how um, the elite system works the majority of funding for elite sport comes from the National Lottery. So the National Lottery was set up in 1994 by John Major, who has recently been deemed the hero of Rio 2016, um, because ultimately his creation of the National Lottery has has um, been what's fed through and allowed us to have the money to do as well as we have done in the last couple of Olympics. So 25% of National Lottery money comes um, into sport, um, and that gets fed through UK sport and then towards the the elite side of things uk sport will share that money within between sort of 46 plus national governing bodies of sport such as england netball or the football association or british cycling and those national governing bodies then spend that money as they see fit to best develop their elite athletes in this country Prior to kind of from the 19th century onwards into the first half of the 20th century, sport and the development of sport at an elite level was kind of more reactive than proactive. So if we had somebody that was relatively good at something, we might decide to support them. But we didn't have any particular agenda or structure to making sure that we had kind of um, a talent development arm of things that we do with young people. Um, and the creation of the Advisory Sports Council um, in 1960 and the offset of that which is the Wolfenden report was the first time that we really identified a need to plan and structure sport in this country rather than be reactive to it um, and the release of the sports council's policy the Wolfenden report really sparked the start of of where we politically drove elite sport um, and we talk a little bit about the virtuous cycle of sport so in this country we know if we've got good role models people are more likely to want to then take part and ultimately the more people we have taken part the more likelihood there is of us having role models and um, so that virtuous cycle is really important to the government in um, promoting a, um, a inclusive and a role model based society so an increased number of countries are now investing in elite sport um, and previously the only evidence we had as to how good a country was at elite sport success was the medal table at the olympics and that's obviously not particularly representative of the varying populations that we might have and um, the varying kind of interest in different sports. So medal counting is not really the best way for us to assess how good a country might be. 
So in 2006, um, a, a fairly clever guy called Debosha and a few of his friends developed the SPLIS model, which is otherwise known as sports policy factors that lead to international sporting success. And ultimately, there are nine pillars of this table, which if we have all of those ingredients, then we, we should be successful at elite success. And this theory can also be used then to analyse what other countries are doing and learn best practice from them as well. So some of the things that we might have had in discussion at the start of the session would be funding. Funding's obviously really important to elite success and then organisation structure of policies as well. Those are the first two pillars. Then after that, we need a good foundation of participation. So much like that virtuous cycle, if the whole of the country is interested in getting involved and they're participating in something, then we're more likely to be able to feed through elite athletes in the future. So a good foundation of participation Training facilities is really important. Um, we have one of the best, most up-to-date velodromes in the world, so it is not um, kind of coincidence that we are very good at cycling. Um, talent identification and talent development. So actually, how do we find the talent and then how do we develop that talent? We've copied the model from Australia, particularly in the last few years, and running programmes such as Girls for Gold through UK Sport, um, which goes into universities and profiles through fitness principles, um, athletes of a certain age to see if they might be able to be molded and coached into certain things so our best example recently would be Lizzie Arnold who retained her gold at the Winter Olympics Lizzie was previously a heptathlete um, and a netball player she was profiled through Girls for Gold um, and it is no coincidence that eight years after that she won her first gold medal um, and she'd never done bobsleigh prior to that uh, coaching provision and coach development is really important uh, we do have quite a lot of coaches from other countries and overseas in England. It's perhaps something that we're not so good at. We're not so good at developing our own coaches, so that's really important. International competition, so to be the best, you have to compete against the best regularly. Um, and international competition is a really key part of, of improving our athletes. Pillar nine, scientific research, so important. So um, again, in terms of the Winter Olympics, you might have seen BBC Sport that other countries had accused us, Team GB, of cheating, that our bobsleighs weren't quite in line with regulation. Um, actually, they were totally in line with regulation. They were just a little bit annoyed that we'd spent more money on the scientific research around those bobsleighs and that they were better than their bobsleighs were. Um, so scientific research around equipment and development of equipment is really important. And finally, the athlete support. So support through their career, however that might be, psychology-wise, nutrition-wise, diet and training, as well as also post-career. So research does tell us that mental well-being of athletes that have retired from elite-level sport do have um, is low. They do have problems with their mental well-being. So post-career support and um, kind of mental well-being support is really important as well so in theory Debosha says if all those things are really well organized and in place then we should be really good at winning medals so just to finish off as a little bit of a quiz um, for you to think about so as we've kind of mentioned public money is used to fund our top athletes it's the taxpayers money through the national lottery what was the cost of each medal that we achieved at Rio 2016 um, and the options are 1.3 million 3.8 million each or 5.2 million each well that's quite an interesting question I mean uh we did quite well at Rio 2016, so I would imagine that we were at the lower end of that spectrum. Um, what's the answer, Julia? 5.2 million per medal. 
So if we divide the cost of the total amount of money put into that four-year cycle by UK Sport, and we divide that by the number of medals we actually won, which was 64, I think, if I'm correct, and we're looking at circa £5.2 million per medal, um, which is a lot of money when you think about the struggles of the NHS at the moment, the potholes outside your road that might not have been fixed that frustrate you every day. That's quite a lot of taxpayers' money to perhaps put into something which you know, some people would perhaps argue isn't necessarily worth it. Um, but the government will justify that back to that virtuous cycle that we talked about and producing role models in Britain. Um, so second question for you, what country came third in the Rio 2016 medal table behind USA and Team GB? China, Australia or Russia? Now I'm not very good at remembering things like medals tables. I'm good at watching the Olympics, but less so on uh, remembering them. Um, I'm going to go with Russia. It was China. So we, um, USA came top of medal table, which is not unusual for such a huge country. Um, Team GB came second, which is their record position of an Olympic Games. And China came third. Um, and kind of if you think about the relative geography of those countries, USA and China compared to Great Britain, gives you an indication of how good we are at our elite sport development, considering the smaller population we have to choose from. Um, last question... What number of medals was Team GB expected to take home at the Winter Olympics 2018 in Pyeongchang? And this expected haul would have broken the previous record haul from 2014. Was it one, three or five? I'm an optimist, so I'm going to say five. Correct. It was five. So we paid for five and we funded five medals. That was the expectation from the government and from UK Sport. We did actually take home five, which did break break our previous record haul however probably four out of those five weren't expected and um, four of the athletes we did expect to take home medals didn't and four of the medals we did take home came from athletes that actually um, went above and beyond their expected position in their um, respective events and um, the one that kind of um, particularly wasn't expected was Lizzie Arnold retaining her gold because she'd actually had a really difficult season she wasn't expected to finish in the top three of that event and she retained her gold medal from four years previously so that's just a little summary of, of what we might do in the taster session um, and hopefully it sparked a little bit of interest the next time that you watch the Olympic Games. It's not all a coincidence, we've paid for it um, and it's in replacement of fixing the pothole outside your front garden. And what opportunities are there to study physical education, sport and health here at UEA? Yep, so um, we have a really broad range of interesting modules available within the physical education, sport and health cluster of courses that we have here at UEA. Um, so for 2018, we'll be advertising titles, um, a BSc in physical education, sport and health, a BSc in physical education directed wholly at PE teaching, primary specialist and then secondary a BSc in sport development, so looking at more of the pathway um, and the participation pyramid from community sport through to elite sport, in particular sports as well as generic, um, and then a BSc in physical activity and health as well, and all of those courses will choose from our, our suite of modules, so anyone who's interested should have a little look at our website um, and come along to an open day. Thank you very much. So Julia and other academics from our physical education and sport and health school here at UEA can come along to your school for a guest lecture if you'd like. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, get in touch with us by email. It's schools at uea.ac.uk. Each week our final item will be opening the post bag. This is your opportunity to get in touch with us and have those questions answered.
We are happy to take questions on anything related to the UCAS process, personal statements, the EPQ, finance, open days, you name it, we will answer it. If you've got a question for us, get in contact. You can email schools at uea.ac.uk and we'll pick it up and answer your question on here. Next time, it's me and Jess presenting. We will be talking about personal statements, UCAS fairs and hopefully be opening the postbag for the first time. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.